We'll be focusing this morning, especially on verses 5 through 11, but let's read verses 1 through 11 just to have a bit more context. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these these you too once walked when you were living in them, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So far, the reading of the Word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 37, stanzas 4 through 7. We won't read those verses again right now, but you would be helped to have your Bibles open as we'll be working through them verse by verse and in some detail. Brothers, and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. In these verses of chapter 3, we're touching down now into some very practical, down-to-earth applications and implications of the Gospel. And that's where we're going to be now for the next at least several weeks. In the verses of our text, in verses 5-11, through 11, Paul writes specifically about four what you might call four main areas of transformation that ought to happen in the Christian life. And I should mention, he's looking here at the negative side first. Four main areas of the old person that we once were that now must die. And you could summarize them as, uh, number one, our sexual lives, the way that we once were in that respect. Number two, in relation to anger. And abuse. Number three, in relation to lies and deception. And number four, in relation to pride and discrimination against others. As we, as we look at each of those uh, this week and for the next several weeks, we need to remember the big idea. I'm not going to get tired of saying this, and I hope that you won't get tired of hearing it. If we don't hear the big idea, we will for sure miss the point entirely. And the big idea is this. If you've come to know Christ and have become a Christian, you are a new person. A tremendously significant thing has happened to you, as you see in chapter 1, verse 13. You've been taken from one realm, one kingdom, and brought by God's grace into a new kingdom in which you have a new identity, a new future, 
a new hope. You are a new person. Uh, As I've said many times in this series, that is, and don't forget it, the greatest imaginable news in your life. And the entire letter of Colossians revolves around that truth. It's all about, the whole letter is all about grasping the significance of that great, that great truth and seeing its implications and applications in your day-to-day life. Uh, when you come to know Christ, then you pass from one dark, evil, empty kingdom into a new dominion, a new existence governed by the wonderful and delightful knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. You've gone from alienation, I think that's uh, chapter 1 verse 21, from alienation and hostility to God to reconciliation and peace with God and, and love with Him through Christ. Or, one more, as Paul says it in chapter 2, you have died and have been raised to new life. You were formerly dead in your sins. That's who we are by nature. Dead in relation to God. There's no spiritual life in relation to the true living God. And God has made you alive in Christ. You've been given a new life, a new identity in Him. No longer is your identity sinner, citizen of the old kingdom, worker of evil. It's a new identity. Your identity now is reconciled forgiven, restored to God, citizen of God's glorious kingdom of light and truth. That's the big idea that we need to hold on to, especially now as we get into the practical applications. Don't see this backwards where if, if you do what Paul is saying here, that's how you get into the new kingdom. No, it's because you're in that kingdom that this is how we now live. As I said last week, we, we live kingdom down, not culture up. That's the the pattern of the Christian life. We live out of our new identity. We say, this is who I am now. This is who I truly am in relation with Christ. And so this is who I will be forever. And so this is who I will be also right now. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 3, You've died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. What he's saying is, eternal life begins already now. Eternal life begins now. It doesn't begin, we don't wait for it to begin after we die, or after Christ returns, because already now, we are new people. Already now, we're living in relationship with God. Uh, The Lord Jesus says it in, in John 17, He says, this is eternal life, to know you, uh, speaking to the Father, to know you and the one whom you have sent. That's the definition of eternal life, to know God and the one whom God has sent. And that has begun already now. We already do know him, so we are already now in our eternal life. Uh, So as we saw last week, if we are citizens of this kingdom, even while we're residents of Uh, this earth, we live here on this earth, yet we are citizens of that kingdom, then our identity comes from there and not from here. And it's worked out. So it comes from there and it's worked out down here. We live kingdom down, not culture up. Uh, We know what we are going to be when Christ finishes His work. Uh, We know what this world is going to be 
when the kingdom of God is fully here. And so we live out of that. We don't take our cue from what our culture does around us, what the world does around us. We take our cue uh, from the values and priorities of the kingdom of heaven. We say that's what this world will one day be. That's what we will be now. Uh, So Paul says then, applying this in verse 5, if all that's true, then put to death what is earthly in you. That's the big idea we want to think about this morning. Uh, if you remember from last week, the, the literal rendering of, of this command in the Greek is make dead the parts of you that are still on earth. Make dead the parts of you that are still on earth. Uh, so what he's saying is even though we have new life, we are new people, we have a new identity, a new future, yet the reality is that we still experience that there exists within us parts of us that don't belong to our new identity. Uh, parts of us that still belong to that fallen culture, that fallen humanity, that hostility to God. It's not completely removed from us. Even though it's not who we are, it's still there within us. Uh, This is the reality of the Christian life, and every single Christian still experiences this. Uh, We we are new people in relation with God, and yet there, there are parts of us within us that we know do not belong. The command from Paul then is, put them out. Get rid of them. Put them to death. Those parts of us are no longer who we are, and so they need to die. Uh, As Christians, then, we live, uh, to to put this in the broad framework, we live with the reality of the already and the not yet. We live in the already. We're already in eternal life, but also in the not yet. We are not yet who we will one day be. Uh, we We are already citizens of Christ's kingdom, And we already enjoy relationship with Him. And in that sense, we're already in eternal life. And yet we're not the people that we will be when Christ returns and perfects us. There's still sin. There's still remnants of that hostility. We see this even even over the course of a single week. We recognize this within us. There's still parts of me that are hostile to God. There are areas of my life that I have still closed to the influence of God and the Holy Spirit. Uh, There are pieces of the kingdom of darkness that still exist within me. What our call is this morning is to recognize those where they are and to, to let them die, to put them to death as part of the old kingdom that is no longer who we are. Uh, Paul then focuses on these four specific areas. Verse 5 deals with sexual sins. Verse 8 with anger and abuse. Verse 9 with deception. And verse 11 with racism and prejudice. And so we'll, we'll move at a, at a quick pace trying to cover these, these broad bases. Uh, verse 5 then. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All of these in context are sexual sins. And if you look carefully, you can also see a pattern to this list. It goes from the external and the visible to the inward heart. It goes from the external to the inward heart. Sexual immorality is the broad term for every form of illicit sexual activity. It includes 
adultery. It includes infidelity. It includes sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage, homosexuality, bestiality, orgies, and of course the list could go on and on. Uh, There's no end to the perversion of the fallen human heart. Uh, The word that's translated sexual immorality, it's a word that occurs often in Scripture. It's the Greek word porneia, from which, of course, we get the English word pornography. And this is our culture. Paul, Paul writes this, and he looks around at his culture. We should recognize the same in our culture. The culture of this kingdom, this world, is a constant parade of celebrating, uh, of celebrating sexual immorality, and our culture is obsessed with sexual immorality. It's everywhere. It's in our movies, our music, our, uh, on the TV, our magazines. It's everywhere around us. People groping around in the dark and all too often groping one another. Uh, that's the culture of this kingdom, the culture of people, uh, humanity that is hostile to God and finds its own way towards its own, uh, towards what it believes will be its own satisfaction. It's massive sexual confusion. And the reality is everyone, even out in the world, everyone agrees that we have a problem in our culture with sexual immorality. But our culture is confused. They don't know what the problem is. Uh, we want to enjoy, we want the freedom in our culture to enjoy every form of sexual immorality, and we have it in our entertainment, uh, so that Hollywood is a cesspool of sexual immorality. There's no denying that. And then we're shocked when people in positions of power in Hollywood uh, are sexually taking advantage of others. Our culture is confused. Now, this is how you can have the Me Too movement at the same time as the Fifty Shades of Grey being screened in theaters. Our, sec- our, our culture is sexually confused. We recognize there are lines you shouldn't cross, but at the same time we want the freedom to cross those lines and to celebrate the crossing of those lines. Our culture is confused. Sexual immorality then is the broad term. Impurity takes that concept of sexual immorality and and looks at it one step deeper towards the heart. Behind all these forms of, of sexual immorality, Paul says, is a heart that is confused, that is, uh, excuse me, not confused, that is impure, a heart that causes us to desire and to do things that are not only wrong, but also filthy and dirty. The, the, the word impure has that, that connotation. It's, it's not just wrong, it's, it's filthy. Uh, and, of course, we should recognize when, whenever Scripture uses a word like impurity, there's an implication there that there is also such a thing as purity. Uh, scripture is not anti-sex. It's not against sexuality. Uh, there is such a thing as purity, Uh, Sexuality is a gift created by God to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. Uh, Song of Songs 5 verse 1, God himself speaks to the two lovers and says, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Uh, There's something beautiful uh, that God has designed, but God has designed it for marriage. Uh, Proverbs 5, verse 19, Solomon says to his son, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. You see the purity that is there. 
But outside of that context of marriage, sexuality is no longer pure. It's taking what God has designed for good and using it for impure ends. And it makes it unclean. Uh, so, so impurity looks at the whole concept of sexual, sexual immorality and, and brings it closer to the heart that is impure before God. Uh, passion, you might find that an unusual uh, word to be condemned. Uh, obviously, it, he's using that word in a different sense than we often use it. There is a good sort of passion that we may speak of. But in this context, it refers to an undirected and an undisciplined sexual lust. It's, it's running with passion after everything that, that pops into one's mind. It is being ruled, controlled by sexual appetites and sexual hunger. Uh, Paul also mentions evil desire. And, and here we get even closer to the heart level. Uh, the old self, the unregenerate human heart, is filled with evil desires. And, and it always tends, as, as those desires are given into, they always tend towards the increasingly perverse and evil. Uh, this is why consumers of pornography always move in that direction, towards the increasingly perverse, the increasingly evil. It always moves in that direction because it stems from a heart that is filled with evil desire. And finally then, Paul mentions covetousness. And he's obviously thinking especially there about sexual covetousness, desiring someone else's husband or wife, wanting them for ourselves. Well, Paul says this is idolatry. Uh, you, you can notice that. He says, covetousness, which is idolatry. It's idolatry because it's making that person or that sexual object or that sexual lust our God. Uh, being ruled by that God instead of being ruled by the one true living God. Uh, living to obtain and enjoy the objects of our sexual lust is idolatry. And this is an important message for our culture. When two strangers go to bed together, they may think, as our culture does, that it's just recreation, it's just pleasure, it's just love. God says, no, it's worship. It is idolatrous worship. The bedroom is the temple, the bed is the altar, and their bodies are the offerings that they bring before their God. It is worship. And you notice what Paul says in verse 6. He says, On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God. If you notice in your footnotes, it, it says that some manuscripts add the phrase, Upon the sons of disobedience. And I think those, those words belong here in, in this text. In fact, it's really just one manuscript and, and a few ancient translations that don't have those words. Uh, the, the editors decided to leave it out because they felt that maybe this is a repetition from Ephesians where Paul uses the same phrase. But I don't, I don't think the evidence is strong enough to take them out. I think Paul meant it here. Uh, Paul just said the same thing to two different churches. Uh, that's, that's not implausible. Uh, so Paul says, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Uh, we need to know that. The, Paul, the reason Paul mentions it is because uh, when we're confronted with the, the, the gods of our culture, the sexual immorality uh, that's around us, we recognize there's a part of us, 
That's what Paul is talking about. There's a part of us that feels an attraction to that. Uh, that's, that's what Paul is saying we ought to put to death. And so the reminder here is the kingdom of darkness, to which all of us on some level do feel some attraction, it's not just an alternate lifestyle. It's rebellion, and the wrath of God is coming against it. You need to know that. If you've come to know Christ and been brought into His kingdom, we need to know that we were uh, not, just, not just transferred from one kingdom to another perfectly great kingdom. We were rescued from a kingdom that is headed towards judgment. And we have no place left in that kingdom. Uh, people sometimes say, well, are you trying to scare me with the wrath of God? Well, yes, the wrath of God should Scare us. That's the whole point. It is terrifying, and Scripture reminds us of that for exactly that reason. We should fear the wrath of God. And it's one of the clearest doctrines in Scripture. Uh, No matter how unpopular it may be to speak about hell and the wrath of God, uh, God has made it very clear that hell uh, exists, it is real, and and God's wrath is coming. And on top of that, God has shown it already in the past. The world before the flood saw the wrath of God. Sodom and Gomorrah experienced the wrath of God. God gave these incidences to to remind us He means what He says. Don't let humanity uh, in in, in some sort of feel-good theology say, yeah, God warns us, but He doesn't really mean it. He won't actually do it. God made it clear He will. He means what he says. And you think of the Canaanite cultures whom God drove out before the land of Israel because their sin had reached its fullness. The wrath of God came upon them. You think of the land of Israel in the time of the kings. Warning after warning, generation after generation from the prophets. The wrath of God is coming. And it came. Uh, you think of the land, uh, the kingdoms of Babylon and Nineveh. Uh, we have several prophets uh, in the minor prophets devoted to warning about the wrath of God coming on those world kingdoms. And it came. Uh, in the New Testament, you think of the city of Jerusalem. How often Jesus warned the scribes and Pharisees, the wrath of God is coming. And it came. And, and the, the contemporary historian Josephus said, never was there such misery in human history ever before uh, that day uh, to the same degree as what Jerusalem experienced when the Roman armies came against them. The wrath of God is coming. Paul says the same of our ungodly culture. The wrath of God is coming. Take no part in that kingdom. Uh, and, and so Paul mentions the wrath of God so that we would take this seriously. So that we would have an urgency to put these things, these old remnants of us, to put them to death. They have no place in the life of a Christian. That's not who you are anymore. Uh, there's no living in between these two kingdoms. You can't live with a foot in, in each camp. We either love God who has delivered us, or we love what God hates. You cannot love both. If you love the things that God hates, you cannot truly be loving God. Uh, so every one of us should feel a sense of urgency in putting these things to death. If, if there are, uh, to make this uh, very pointed If there are young men or women here who are still engaging in pornography 
or who are flirting with sexual immorality, you need to know that these are the works of darkness for, for which Christ came to die, and the wrath of God is coming for them. Uh, these are the very things that Christ hated so much that he was willing to die to, to deliver us from them. If you are still there, still flirting with the old kingdom, you are hanging between two kingdoms that are utterly opposed to one another. And so you need to ask yourself, do I know who I am? Which kingdom do you belong to? Have you indeed come to know Christ? And if you have, you need to put these things to death. And putting it to death begins with confession. It's the first act of of shattering the old idol that we once lived for is, is the act of confession. You need to acknowledge the sin that is there and you must confess it first to God and secondarily to, to Christians who can hold you accountable. First uh, John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, that's, that's refusing to confess, we make God a liar and His word is not in us. Or James 5, verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You cannot begin to put sin to death until you have confessed it. Now, secondly, you need to know Christ. You need to know Christ more than anything in the world. You need to know who He is, the eternal God who came to earth to live the life that we ought to have lived, to die the death that we deserve to die, to rise again and to give us new life, to bring us into a new kingdom. And, and for you to know Christ, you need the Word of God and you need the Spirit of God. Pray for the Spirit of God. Open the Word of God. Uh, do so in private. Do so as well in the, in the presence of other Christians. But do so after you've taken the first step of confessing your sins to God and to those who may hold you accountable. Having done so, open the Word of God. Pray for the Spirit of God. Uh, remember the promise also, uh, James 4, verse 8. Draw near to God and He will. It's a promise. He will also draw near to you. Uh, Christ promises again in John 6, verse 37, All whom the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So there's a call here for all of us who belong to Christ. Uh, We recognize that the abiding kingdom, the lasting kingdom, our identity that will not be taken away uh, is the kingdom of light and truth, uh, light and truth and purity. The kingdom of Christ that we have been made to belong to. And so Paul urges us to break all ties with the old kingdom that we once were part of. Uh, Don't hang out with a foot on each side. The wrath of God is coming on account of the works of that old kingdom. That's verses 5 and 6. Let's take a look at verses 7 through 8 as well. Uh, Here Paul deals with uh, a different realm uh, of sin or a different category of sin. Sins of anger and abuse, which also characterize the kingdom of this culture. Uh, Colossians 3, then verse 7, In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, 
malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He, he begins with anger. This is something we don't talk about as much as we talk about other sins. How many of us experience anger? Now, some of us, when we hear a, a verse like this, we tend to react along a, a specific set of excuses. We say, yeah, but isn't anger also sometimes a good emotion? And doesn't God sometimes get angry? Didn't Jesus get angry? Yeah, what about the temple when he had a whip in his hand and he was turning over tables at the temple? Isn't then anger sometimes a good thing? Well, you're right. It is sometimes a good thing. Paul himself acknowledges it in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, be angry, but do not sin. There is, a, there is such a thing as righteous anger. But here's the thing. Your anger isn't it. Your anger is not righteous. Uh, most of the time, if not all the time, your anger is not righteous anger. That's why far more often a scripture just condemns anger in a blanket term. doesn't give qualifications. Because almost all the time, the anger of man is unrighteous. See, when God gets angry, God gets angry in perfect righteousness. He gets angry at injustice and evil, and He gets angry because He loves what is right. And when God gets angry, God doesn't start deceiving Himself about His own sin the way that we do when we get angry. God's anger is a righteous anger, and it's an anger that addresses sin and deals with sin. It's an anger that grows out of a love for what is righteous. When we get angry, far more often than not, it's a matter of pride. We, we know it is, if we're honest with ourselves. And it's self-deception. We get angry, and we hold on to that anger, and we cherish it, and we, we stoke the fires of that anger because it makes us feel good. It makes us feel more righteous than those around us when we're not. That is a self-deceptive anger. And it's an anger that is useless in dealing with actual sin. There is such a thing as righteous anger, but almost all the time, our anger is not it. Now, I know uh, it's, it's a hard message to hear, and perhaps some of you are angry even at hearing a message like that. We say, no, I'm right to be angry. I'm angry because what he or she did was wrong. Well, if it's righteous anger, do you pray for them with a heartfelt concern? Do you pray to God about that which you're angry about? Have you allowed yourself to become bitter? Because that too is wrong. That too is sin. And more to the point, does your own sin, which you know better than anyone, and which is just as grievous in the sight of God, does your own sin get you just as angry as the sin of others? Uh, would your wife or your husband agree uh, that your own sin upsets you more than the sins of others? We deceive ourselves when we think that all of our anger is somehow righteous. Well, you can answer these questions uh, in, in honesty before God, as, as all of us will have to do. But I would submit to you then that the reason that Paul doesn't even bother to qualify anger uh, as unrighteous anger, even though that is technically what he means, is because the vast majority of the time our anger is simply not righteous now, the Apostle James says in, in James 1, verse 19, Know this, 
My beloved brothers, let every person be quick to, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And this is our culture, isn't it? Uh, or, or I should say this is the very opposite of our culture. Uh, our culture is slow to listen, quick to speak, and very quick to anger. If you don't believe me, look at the comments under any YouTube uh, or, or Facebook post. Uh, you see the anger that's immediately there, sometimes uh, completely unrelated even to the topic. Uh, you see this in, in the news cycles as well. It's just a never-ending cycle of outrage from both sides. Uh, quick, uh, excuse me, slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to anger. That's part of the kingdom of darkness, which we are called to put out. You are to be slow, uh, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Uh, next, Paul uh, gets, gets even uh, more uh, explicit. He mentions wrath. This is, this is a particular expression of anger, and it refers to sudden outbursts. Of anger, things like losing your temper, becoming uncontrollable in your anger, and and we all do this to, to differing um, extremes. But it's it's letting everyone know, everyone around you know how angry you are. And I, as I say this, I recognize I'm as guilty of this as anyone else. We let our unrighteous anger, our feelings, our wrong feelings of entitlement, uh, simmer inside us until suddenly they boil over and then we take, as it were, the throne of God, acting as if uh, we are God, wanting everyone to know how angry we are. This is slammed doors, raised voices. Uh, Some of us have holes in the wall because of these outbursts of wrath. Uh, hinges that don't work properly on doors anymore or furniture that is broken are the signs of wrath. And all of us uh, experience this wrath. Uh, the sad truth is that it, this is often treated as one of those uh, sort of respectable sins that Christians are somehow allowed to have. But Paul is clear, it has no place in the Christian life. It is evil, it is demonic, it is the work of Satan, the work of the kingdom of darkness. Put away anger and wrath. Uh, Paul also mentions malice. Uh, Malice is also a specific uh, manifestation of of anger. And it's a demonic desire to hurt. Another word for malice is simply cruelty. It's being cruel. Wanting to hurt someone, uh, oftentimes for no good reason at all. It's actions and words that are calculated to hurt and to destroy. And it's awful to think about, but every one of us has done this sort of thing. It's just plain cruelty. And usually we do this to those who are nearest to us. Uh, some of you men know that you've been cruel and malicious to your wives in the words that you have said. And, and likewise, you wives know that you've done this also to your husbands. Uh, some of you, you parents know that you've had these moments where you've just been cruel, malicious to your own children, just unsympathetic and unmerciful. That is malice. It's saying and doing things that aren't intended for the good of the other person, but simply intended to hurt as an expression of your contempt or your anger. And it too is demonic. Paul says it must be put 
out. Uh, Another way we can be malicious is through slander that Paul also mentions. Uh, That's saying things that we, we know aren't true, but saying them in order to destroy someone else anyways. It may be exaggerating the truth, That's also slander. It may be presenting only one side of a story. That too is slander. Uh, It's often saying things like, uh, he always does this, or you never do that. An exaggeration of the truth that is uh, ultimately slander. It's presuming motives as well, presuming motives that are uncharitable. The real reason he did this is because he really wanted to do such and such. That's slander. It's also writing people off. Uh, His opinion doesn't matter because this or that. It's writing people off. Or or I don't believe that that person's a true Christian because they did such and such. Just condemning uh, others. Uh, That is is slander. Paul also mentions obscene talk. Now, usually we associate that phrase, obscene talk, uh, with, with sexually obscene talk, so inappropriate joking or, or sexually objectifying language, and that obviously is something that also must be put out. But here in this context, in, in this particular list of sins, uh, I, I think this has to do more with the, the way we speak within relationships, and I would characterize it as abusive language, a demeaning uh, talk, talk that is obscene in, in respect to the image of God in someone else. It's calling people, people names. It's giving people the finger. It's, it's the sort of thing that we, we too often mutter under our breath in, in traffic. You know, that idiot. Uh, that's demeaning the image of God in someone else. Uh, and finally, Paul says, do not lie to one another. This is so deeply ingrained in the human culture. Uh, The Lord Jesus says that lying is Satan's native language. It's the very first thing he did when he spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. He told them a lie. And that too is is part of unregenerate humanity. Uh, The average child begins to tell lies sometime between the ages of two and three. And some of you know that your child has got that beat by a a good record. there are many reasons that our culture lies, and more often than not, our culture, human beings do not even realize it anymore when they are lying. And we lie to save face, twisting the story a little bit to, to make us look better. We lie to shift blame. We lie to avoid confrontation. We lie to get our way. We lie sometimes even to be nice. This is called flattery. It's lying to be nice without the intention to actually benefit or help the person. We lie to ourselves to make ourselves feel better. We lie about our sin. We live in a culture where deception is just second nature. It comes to us automatically. It's so common we don't even realize we're doing it. But having been taken from that kingdom, having been brought into the kingdom of Christ, we recognize that that truth-telling is now part of who we are, and lying no longer has any place in our lives. So, brothers and sisters, you need to know that, that these things are no longer who you are. That's the big idea here. This is who we used to be before Christ delivered us from it. This is the kingdom that we used to belong to. But this is God's grace. If you have come to know Christ, you are a new person in Him. You have a new life. Your life is bound up together with the life of Christ, and you will one day, who you are will one day be perfectly revealed. 
You belong to a new kingdom. You have a new identity. So put off and put to death what belongs to the old you. Uh, Paul says it in verse 9, You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after its creator. Uh, this, this putting off and, and putting on is, is a common biblical way of speaking. It's obviously working with the metaphor of clothing. Uh, you put off certain clothes, you put on new clothes, and you recognize uh, those new clothes are now fitting to who you are. Uh, I think of Isaiah 61, uh, uses that metaphor in detail. Isaiah 61, verse 10, where he says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in Him, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, so He has clothed us. In Christ, we have been given a new identity. We are a new people. And, and we don't just clothe, uh, clothe our bodies with, with a new uniform, just looking different on the outside, but Christ clothes our very soul. Our very self is now wearing new clothes. Uh, and notice, notice then how Paul speaks. He says, uh, notice the past tense here. He says, you have. Past tense. You have put off the old self with its practices. And you have put on the new self, which is being, present tense, being renewed. Uh, So a change of identity has happened already. You're already wearing the new clothes of righteousness uh, bought for you by Christ. Uh, You're already a new citizen of a new kingdom. But the person that you are right now is also being renewed. Uh, You are not yet fully the person that you will one day be, but you do already have that identity. In God's eyes, that is who you are and who you are over the course of your life also becoming. Uh, And it's because of that new identity, it's because we know who we are that we find the strength and the courage to cut all ties off from the people that we once were. And it's hard work. That's hard work to put the old self to death. It's hard because living in in between, we still relate to that old identity. It feels like part of who we are. Just like old clothes, all of you, some of you I've, I've noticed more obviously than others, but all of you have old clothes that you never would wear if, if you were shopping for them in the mall and, and you saw this and you say, no, that's... That's way out of date. I would never wear it. But because you own it, you wear it. It's part of who you are. It's already in in your closet. So also with the putting off and putting on of, of the new clothes that is our identity with Christ. It's hard to recognize that certain things we're used to wearing no longer reflect who we are. We must put them off. Uh, That's hard work, but it's work that stems not from a a desire to become someone new, but the knowledge that we are someone new and that these clothes no longer fit who we are. And and so verse 11 finishes uh, this section so beautifully. It reminds us uh, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Here in the kingdom of Christ, there is not Greek or Jew, not circumcised or uncircumcised, not barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is you. 
Uh, Christ is in you. Uh, The kingdom that we were taken from, uh, here he's also drawing a contrast. The kingdom that we were taken from was filled with hatred, with isolation, with prejudice, with racism. Uh, There's racial hostility in in the categories he mentions. Greeks uh, versus Jews, circumcised versus uncircumcised. Uh, Not to mention the general hatred we all have towards barbarians, Scythians, and slaves. Uh, or, or the contempt that we have. There's, there's, so there's ethnic hostility, there is religious hostility, there is cultural hostility, and there is class hostility. And we recognize these also in our own cultures. There are uh, politicians who like to stir these divisions up to their advantage, and yet these divisions do exist. We recognize uh, that they are there, but they are not there in the kingdom of Christ, or they do not belong there. In the kingdom of Christ, the ground is level. We are Christians before we are anything else. That's why we call ourselves as a church brothers and sisters. Uh, In our own culture, uh, it it happens too often that these these divides are stirred up and and increased even uh, in order to create separation to serve political uh, purposes, black versus white, or or women versus men. And these supposed divisions are, are enlarged and multiplied. In the kingdom of darkness, that works as an effective strategy because it appeals to the alienation and hostility that is there in the hearts of those who are not reconciled to God. It speaks to our pride or our sense of superiority or our our, our sense of even victimhood. It's that hostility we have towards all those around us. It makes us feel better about ourselves because then we have people to blame or people to hate. As Christians, we have to leave this behind. There ought not to be any ethnic hostility, any racial hostility, even religious hostility. We recognize that to be a genuine division, but it is not a division of hostility, but a division of those who have come to know Christ, loving, serving, and praying for those who have not. Uh, That's not to say we're we're colorblind in every sense. We we do see and appreciate and respect uh, ethnic differences. Uh, That's part of how God has made us, and it's something we we celebrate. It's not that we are colorblind, but that our colors do not create a barrier in in Christian fellowship. And this is important for us, uh, especially as a a church that comes from a predominantly Dutch background. Uh, There's nothing wrong with being a Dutch church. Uh, That's just who we are. It's just part of our identity. Uh, But our identity as citizens of Christ's kingdom means that we need to be careful, especially careful, as as coming from a particular ethnicity, uh, to put off any sense of superiority or antagonism uh, to other races or cultures in matters that are merely cultural and not moral. Um, obviously that doesn't mean we compromise on our biblical and and Christian values, but we recognize the kingdom of of Christ is coming to transform this world, including the Dutch culture within this world. That, too, needs to be transformed by the kingdom of Christ. Uh, And and so we we want, as a church, to, uh, to exercise the utmost caution not to be more Dutch than Christian. We are Christians in the first place, and that is our first love and our highest allegiance. 
Uh, So we need to watch ourselves that we would not let our heritage ever be a source of hostility or superiority towards other races or, or other cultures. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And, and we, we look forward to the, the days uh, portrayed in Revelation uh, where there will be people of every tribe, nation, language, and tongue worshiping God together. So, brothers and sisters, the charge to you is this. Above everything else, remember who you are. Remember what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. There, were, there, there is nothing that will lead to greater transformation in these sorts of details in our daily lives than knowing who you are in Christ and and remembering and holding on and growing in our understanding of the significance of what God has done for us in Christ. Let that truth utterly transform your life. Let it shake your foundations. Let it redefine your values and priorities. And, And as you look forward to the fullness of that kingdom, enjoy already now the sweet foretaste that we do have of that kingdom, including the foretaste of fellowship in peace here in this church. And, and let that hope give you the courage then and the determination, the urgency to put off anything that doesn't belong to who you now are. Let it die and grow up into the person you will be for eternity. Amen. Let's respond to the word of God by singing from Psalm 46, stanzas 1 through 5.